Welcome back, Kafka Bond listeners. We're here with episode 86, and it's just you and me in the driver's seats today, Tony, but we're talking corporate advisory. Yes, we are. And isn't it wonderful to be back in the city, be back sitting in our boardroom, went out for lunch yesterday, saw everyone smiling, so I walked down to that poke bowl you told me to go to, try and eat healthy, and everyone is smiling now they might have been smiling under their mask but there weren't too many people wearing masks anymore and it was just it was just nice to see the sun was out nice to see people back in the cbd again it is and it's uh, it has been some lovely weather here and it's it's nice looking out the view and, and doing this podcast instead of looking at you on a screen i will say i was in the chemist this morning though and i'm walking around the, uh, my chemist warehouse down in kew and i realize all of a sudden oh, i still have to have my mask on in here so i put my mask on and then I turned the corner looking for these vitamins that I wanted and I actually bumped square into a police officer. <laughs> and I felt so guilty, even though I had the mask on, I just felt guilty. I felt like I was doing something wrong. Yeah. So, but thankfully I, I, I remembered to put it on after I'd been walking around there for what seemed like 10 minutes, but it was about 60 seconds, but watching everyone else with their mask on. So it was, uh, it was interesting, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was like all of a sudden I felt guilty, even though these police officers look 16. It's, I'm, I'm obviously getting old. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say, so, can't be quite 16. To no, be I know, now, but, but they, they just, police officers just look so young to me nowadays. I'm obviously getting very old. So we'll talk corporate advisory today, and I guess there's two parts to corporate advisory. Um, there's been a director of a company and yeah. having those responsibilities, but there's also a lot of work that you do on the... You know, corporate advisory level where you're sitting on advisory boards yeah. um, and, and doing that a lot with clients. So I, I guess we'll start with the responsibilities of being a director. Yeah. Um, and you, we'll, we'll cover what you do as a director. Um, I think you're currently a director of two or three companies. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll go through them. So I guess that part of it, the responsibilities of a director. So if you consider um, there are major responsibilities of a director and one of the major uh, things with a director is making sure you know a company can stay afloat uh, and that it can cover its uh, can basically stay open for at least three months um, so even though those laws have been relaxed slightly with this pandemic uh, to make sure companies weren't going out insolvent uh, but yeah trading whilst insolvent is a massive issue uh, but so the difference is when you are a director of a company, there are director's responsibilities. And a lot of people who start up their own companies, they wouldn't have a clue what those director's responsibilities are. But even things, for example, making sure your BAS is paid on time and uh, having to negotiate with the tax officer time and making sure accounts are lodged uh, within certain time periods. So, And that, that's just all the normal, never mind your... HR responsibilities, you know, if, if a worker was to, you know, get injured on a building site and you're, you could be, you know, responsible for that as well. So there are a lot of responsibilities being a director of a company and um, I'm only a director of uh, one company that I'm not a shareholder in and that's actually a charitable foundation. Yeah, so uh, Carry On Victoria. Yeah, Carry On Victoria, who I absolutely love the guys there. So we actually uh, sat in the first AGM meeting with them yesterday. It's an 88-year-old charity. Very honoured to be um, on that board helping veterans. Yeah, I seen that on the news the other day that they'd opened a cafe down in Yeah, we did. So I was actually down there for that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's great because all the profits they make go directly back to supporting veterans. Uh, so it's, um, and I'll tell you what, per square metre, 
uh, down there. You can sell a coffee uh, for a lot less than you can sell one here and still make a profit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the CBD <laughs> rents and the Morwell rents are very different, to say the least. But that's been very successful, and that was driven by our executive officer, uh, Dave McNamara, and who has, you know, also is is a, is an army vet himself, but he also has extensive uh, background in logistics, charities, and. Um, also owns his own building construction, very successful in building construction. So so Dave was actually the one who instigated that and it's been very successful to the point where our president has now said, I think we can actually start rolling these out in towns where there are high veteran populations nationally. Yep. Um, so we, we do own 100 properties, uh, which we you know have uh, provide out to veterans who are in need and things like that. And some of them is long-term. Uh, yeah, long-term rentals there, so extremely subsidised rentals uh, for veterans. So, yeah, that's great. Now, I am a director of that company. It comes with the exact same director's responsibilities. Yep. It doesn't differ. Um, and, you know, so from that perspective as well, there are, you know, real responsibilities that come with that. I'm not a shareholder in that because it's a charity, obviously. Yeah, and, uh, and you also don't take a wage, I believe. No, I don't. So if I was to be a director of any other company, I would certainly be taking a fee for that. Yeah. Uh, it says you don't take on those responsibilities for no reward. Yeah. Uh, that's just a no-go whatsoever. So, but basically, no, there's no, it's uh, the positions on the board of carry-on are all uh, voluntary. Uh, so there's no fee involved in that whatsoever. So, yep. I mean, in, in saying that too, there's you know it doesn't take up huge amounts of my time, uh, but it is an amazing cause, and you know any expertise that I can bring to that table, I certainly do bring. Yep. Uh, so, uh, saying that though, I would not be a director of any other client's company. I see that as a conflict of interest, number one. But secondly, to that I won't take on responsibilities for a non-listed company, being a director of a non-ASX listed company, purely based on the fact that it's, you know, how many people sign checks, how many people do this, because basically my reputation is on the line if something was to happen with that company. And you've explained that to clients as well. Some have gone to join their friends, things as directors to help out and things like that. But, That's right, you know, yeah. there's responsibilities with that, and I, I know you've turned a few away on doing that. Absolutely, I have. So it's... Um, but in saying that, that's that's no reflection on them or their success, etc. But when you're a director of an ASX listed company, there is an extra set of governance and rules that have to be out there. So, and an ASX listed company is totally transparent. So, for example, we're obviously not an ASX listed company, uh, so nobody knows what my wage is. You know, nobody knows the ten dollars a week I get paid. So, it's. Uh, but when you're an ASX listed company. Everything is transparent. Yeah, uh, absolutely everything. Your profit, your expenses, uh, absolutely everything is trans. No different than a charity, uh, but absolutely everything is transparent. So from that perspective, um, there is that extra level of governance. I'm. I would be happy to sit on a board of an ASX listed company if I can add value. Yeah. The the only, you don't you don't sit on. A lot of people do. It's their full time jobs. But you don't you don't sit on a board just to put it on your resume. As far as I'm concerned, um, I'm busy enough as it is without uh, requiring requiring that on my LinkedIn profile or on a resume. But in saying that, though, you do sit on a board if you can add some considerable value, and on that basis, if you can add some considerable value and you're a shareholder in that company, well, absolutely, uh, you would. And the, the fees aren't astronomical. We're not talking 
you know, Tony Coffin is never going to get invited on the board of BHP, <laughs> nor could I ever add any value to BHP whatsoever. Uh, but in saying that, though, if I can't add value, I'm not going to sit on there just for the, uh, you know, having the no, honour no. um, of being a director of a company. Yeah. So I guess the other side, which we'll probably talk more about today, I think we were just touching on that, but the corporate advisory where you're doing and sitting on advisory boards and, yes. and you do do a lot of this and it comes with different responsibilities and provides a different, I guess, value to our clients. It does. And you know, I've been doing this for uh, 28 years now. So this coming February will be 29 years. Um, and when you, when you actually have a look at that, the advisory board role is very different. And I do encourage clients who are, are of that size and looking to grow to actually have an advisory board. But once again, an advisory board who can open up doors um, and you know, bring other people to the table yeah. uh, to be able to help that company grow. And that is definitely a paid position, but an advisory board uh, member does not come uh, with a with the res- director's responsibilities. So realistically, there's two well, there's a few sides to the advisory board. And first of all, what is the reason and the purpose that the client set that up? And sometimes it's us encouraging the client. So, from Kafkan Bond's perspective, a lot of people see us as being their fund manager. Now we're not obviously a fund manager, but we do. Uh, look after their wealth so people say yeah these guys are great they protect us they protect our money uh, and they help us invest funds and help us invest tax effectively and and that that's what the traditional financial planner is known as but us as a financial planning firm because we do a lot of work with SMEs you know these SMEs could be turning over a million dollars they could be turning over you know 500 million dollars but we do a lot of work with the SMEs but 29, nearly 29 years of experience in working with a whole range of other people. And there's, you know, the saying is that if I don't know that person, I will ring up and introduce myself to find out who they are, if I can add value to another client on that. So, so from that perspective, it's the knowledge. So, you know, I've helped um, one group who are furniture wholesalers. Uh, family-owned business, very successful, beautiful family, uh, very successful, son in, uh, two son-in-laws and the son are basically running it with the dad. Um, very successful business, get down to the next generation now. Uh, dad is, you know, in his 70s now. Uh, but basically it's a case of that I've come in there with a completely different set of eyes. So I sit on that board with uh, their accountant, who's a magnificent accountant as well. We work very well together, but from my perspective, I have no idea whatsoever about furniture, except I know what a chair is when I sit on it. And you still think that's blue out there where it's black, that chair? It's it's blue. (laughs) It's blue. So it's... uh, But in saying that, it's what I do bring is a fresh perspective and a fresh set of eyes to that. And in sometimes it's a case of just doing an introduction. So, you know, that's, that's an example. With, a, with another client, it's a case of that, you know, it's, uh, I have a, um, some political contacts where it's a case of, listen, I need, um, I'll, and I'll make that phone call and I'll say, I think you guys need to talk. Um, and they talk and then something can come of now something can come of that because the government at the time turned around and say listen this is really good 
we, we need this for our education or we need this for, you know, to, to help, um, you know, the hospitals or something like that as well. So, or sometimes it's simply, you know, working with uh, having exposure to a lot of VC firms and M&A merger and acquisition firms and venture capital firms. Sorry, I'll stop using the acronyms. <laughs> so it's, I get told off for that all the time. But basically it's a case of sitting on the board and saying, listen, guys, I think you have to start thinking of your succession because you've got a business which is worth 50 million bucks now. Yeah. Are you going to give that to your children? Uh, but then are you still going to be keeping control and telling them what to do? To do? Or are you, so in other words, are you keeping a private? And so been some, some unbelievably successful private businesses, uh, you know, some one of the richest, well, a lot of the richest families in Australia have not listed their companies, and that there's, you know, the the Liebermans or uh, the uh, Pratts, as an example, with Visi, huge global organisations that are not listed anywhere. Uh, so they're still actually privately owned companies from that perspective still ran, run with the corporate governance of a listed company. There's no doubt in that. But in saying that, though, sometimes it's a case of, okay, this is what you're worth right now. Are you going down to that next generation or do we have to look at bringing in someone else or do we have, you know, as a buyout so you can actually then invest those funds for the future generations or are you going to uh, continue basically until you're in your 80s and drop dead and leave no succession plan for the family? Or is it a case of, why don't we look at listing this now? Yep. Because there are huge growth opportunities there. And I didn't have anything to do with it, but you know, one company is an example uh, earlier this year, which was really good listing, a successful listing. Actually, no, it was late last year, was um, Opticom. Um, the reason why I know about Opticom is because we have a couple of clients, uh, very senior clients that actually work there. And Opticom was a privately held business uh, listed, uh, the shares virtually doubled in the space of four months. Uh, the founder has now gone from a paper value, I think we'll having this argument with uh, Willard this morning, but the paper value, uh, but to actually having real cash in the bank value. Uh, now Opticom has just been bought out by a competitor now, another listed company, which increased the value once again. So, so that was a, a plan for the original founder who also rewarded all of his senior people and got staff, staff were allowed to buy into the listing at up to 25 grand worth of shares. Basically that doubled within a couple of months. Everyone's quite happy with that. So that's an example of a company that realistically is too big just to be sold. But bringing it to a listing and then having your realise, you can always say, yeah, my company's worth 400 million, but until someone buys it, it's it's just a paper value. The argument we're having was about Elon Musk and Tesla. You know what Tesla shares are worth and what his shares are worth right now. And I said, yeah, he's got no money in the bank. What did you say, Jamie? I still think he can buy whatever stake he wants in the world. <laughs> I still think he can. Listen, I still think he can too. I, I just don't like Willard talking about Tesla in front of me. <laughs> so, but no, listen, he, he is a great success story. So I think from the advisory board perspective is that you don't just have your mates on the board. You look for people that can actually add value. And one of the greatest stories of this, once again, I had nothing to do with it, but I know the story was 5am um, yogurt. And 5am yogurt was 
he started the founder, so I won't mention his name, but he founded it from scratch, young guy. Um, his business is, sorry, his family were very successful in the packaging industry. Um, he, even before he sold his first tub of yoga, because he built the factory from scratch, it's called 5am because that's just what time he gets up, very healthy individual every day, that's why he called it 5am yogurt. But basically it was one of the first organic yogurts uh, that was brought to the markets. Now he already had $4 million worth of debt uh, before he sold his first tub of yogurt. Uh, so that, and that put a lot of stress. I know his bankers were Westpac, uh, I think Westpac were starting to get a little bit concerned as well. Um, and when you actually have a look at that story, though, what he did so amazingly well was the three. he put together an advisory board. Three members of that advisory board, I, I can't remember the third uh, person's name, but you had Don Argus, who was the chairman, he was before he retired, the chairman of uh, Woolies. Obviously had all the contact with Fully and Coles and another very famous name for those who know football um, and Carlton United Breweries, John Elliott, was on that board. They all paid fees of $50,000 a year. I don't charge that much, but they've got bigger reputations than me. But the thing was, though, he had the contract with Coles and Woolies even before he'd produced his first tub of yoghurt. Five years later, he successfully sold that business from scratch to sell to cousins out of Singapore, uh, being in dairy. Uh, for 85 million bucks. That's not a bad result. But the point is though, he got the people on the board and paid them, even though he wasn't making any money, and he paid them because they could open doors, because yeah. they could actually bring in the contacts, because they could sell, help him sell tubs of yogurt without having to sell them at the farmer's market on the Sunday down at Hawthorne Oval. <laughs> so it was, the basis behind it is, is he got people on that board who could open doors, and if not, if they didn't know who to open the door, they could successfully pick up the phone because anyone will take the call from Don Argus, as an example. And now, and Macquarie ended up doing that sale. They went and found a purchaser, uh, they organised a sale, uh, and they got the sale for him. So that was very successful. So didn't even have to go to a listing. He got a sale price over and beyond his expectation, and then he bought a Scotch distillery in uh, Edinburgh. And yeah, so next one. Next one. So it's um, it was like a three hundred year old Scotch distillery in oh. Edinburgh. So we're not talking about uh, starting from scratch again. He bought the infrastructure this time round. Yeah. Uh, still lives in Australia, but it's um, obviously it likes his Scotch very much. So, so I guess Tony, what advice would you give for a company? Because you know, for a guy that's got a big business that's growing a guy or girl that's got a business that's growing um, yeah. they don't have an advisory board or anyone helping them they're, they're doing it solo what mm. would your advice be to those people I think the key is is that working with and you know no offence to my financial planning brethren or uh, accountants or lawyers out there um, but a lot of them don't work in this market. Um, so accountants can be magnificent at compliance accounting. As you know, our new accountants were actually invited onto our own advisory board yep. uh, because he actually is helping us with a whole range of areas uh, that are not our area of expertise, but also to the point uh, he's holding us accountable. Uh, now as we get moved to that next phase of our own business even though we obviously have a good understanding of money and accounting uh, we've actually invited a third party in which we're paying a fee for but we've invited a third party in to hold us accountable the basis of it is though is the majority of accountants are transaction driven 
the majority of, so in other words, that can be greater gene compliance and making sure your tax return is good and getting you as much tax refund as possible. Um, the majority of um, you know, lawyers are transaction driven, they have their specialty area. So we're not talking your sort of GP lawyers, we're talking those in your specialty area. So sometimes they will sit on an advisory board, uh, but it's usually more the head of those firms rather than uh, the individual lawyers within them. But most importantly is you need to ask yourself the question, how can they add value to us getting the check we want or getting our business sale, sale ready or making more profits or going into that growth phase? What can they bring to the table? What doors can they open? What work can they do? So as an example, I obviously have a financial background, but right now uh, with Carry On Victoria, um, I'm actually heading up the education side of where we're reviewing our currents because we provide a lot of money for education for veterans families but we're actually reviewing our current strategy and what we've done historically um, and looking at the new strategy moving forward as well so I'm actually heading that up and obviously I have a, as most people know I have a real uh, love for helping underprivileged people with education children with education so so based on that, that's an area that I love, but it's also an area where I know sometimes it's not about, it's introducing those families to other areas, uh, like for example, working with Smith Family, who are a wonderful organisation, or you know working with Berry Street for teenagers who just need to be sort of encouraged and put back on track, or sometimes it's you know music and education, or sometimes it's a whole range of other areas as well. So the basis of what that client is, is the client, you always know that um, if somebody is a case of, no, do this, do this, do this, and they're taking you off track, that's not it. You have to have a clear focus and understand what that clear focus is. Surround yourself with level five leaders uh, who are involved in that, who can keep you focused. And then the next step is how can they make you grow and how do you measure the results that you're getting for the money that you're paying that person? That's the key. And I, I'll give you, I'll close on one last story. I know he listens to our podcast. Uh, magnificent podiatrist uh, by the name of Ryan Twist. Um, Ryan is a wonderful guy. And Ryan came to me, uh, I've known Ryan for years through triathlons. Uh, coached him there for a while. Um, and he has a very successful business. And he came to me and said, Tony, I'm looking at this business coach and it's going to cost me X amount of dollars uh, to have them on board. From your experience, are they worthwhile? And I said, I can't answer that question because I don't know who the business coach is. Uh, but the only person who can answer that question is you. Because if a business, a business coach can tell you wonderful things, but if you don't implement them, well then you're just wasting your money. Yep. So if you're gonna engage a business coach as an example, so in this case, you know, as, as another example to an alternative of a advisory board, if you're gonna engage a business coach is for the 24,000 bucks that they're gonna charge you over the next 12 months, how are they going to add $240,000 to your top line revenue? That's the way I look at it. So if you're going to engage them, how are they going to make you an extra quarter of a million dollars? And realistically, that quarter of a million dollars should add probably about 30% to your bottom line after all your costs and infrastructure, etc. So that's what you have to ask them that question. But if they're going to take you off focus, what your focus is is what's got you to the success that you are today, 
or that they're or you're not actually going to listen or implement what uh, they're telling you to do then you're wasting your money and you're wasting their time because otherwise just take the 24 grand investor for 10 years and you've got 500 grand anyway <laughs> so it's uh, you know just just let it work passively for you so that's the key don't have somebody around so you can pain them so you can feel good about yourself that's what a narcissist does okay so in other words i'm going to have four people here and every month we're going to get together and i'm just going to tell you how good i am that's what a narcissist does you want somebody who will challenge you somebody who will give you new ideas somebody who will hold you accountable so next month when you come back or group that will hold you accountable so next month when you come back you said you, you said you're going to do this or investigate this or do this, what has been done. And one example in that furniture group, I got their CFO, who's one of the son-in-laws, uh, to go away and he came back because I wanted him not just to look at the top line, the bottom line, but to break down the four different business divisions in there and what they make. One of them was making a huge loss. In other words, it was being carried by that. So I just asked the question, why are you still doing it? Because uh, it's not about what you earn. Now, this was the original legacy business that it spawned onto, and that was making a huge loss. It's not about what you earn, it's what you get to keep. So you could actually strip out the $2 million in revenue that that business earns for them and actually add 600000 to their bottom line because it was costing them $2.6 million to have it. Yep. That's, that's the example of a new set of eyes, and obviously from that perspective, I have absolutely zero emotional attachment uh, to that. So that's, that's the big example of everything that can be done and what should be done on taking that business to the next level. Tony, thank you, and we'll talk next week. Thank you, Jamie.